0: Matthew chapter 21, this week I was reading a story, there's a guy by the name of Craig Larson, he talked about when he was dating his wife, uh, she took a, a temp job at a bank, and it's kind of pretty interesting, kind of moving into the actual working business world there. At, at the particular bank she was working at, there was uh, a lot of unprofessional behavior going on here. They had uh, four kids that had gotten out of college they were working there. They're kind of their first job. They had a supervisor. She was about a generation older than these four younger people that were there. And they used to just kind of basically sit around and talk. She'd have them They'd be sitting on her desk. They'd go for extended coffee breaks and just always yakking it up and hardly doing anything, you know. And so she's, she's kind of watching this. It was surprising how, how quote unquote friendly everybody was, at least with that group. But, uh, there was another lady that apparently had joined that team about a week prior to that lady kind of in her 30s, and they just ripped this lady to shreds. They'd make jokes about her. She'd try to join their conversation at coffee break, they'd, conversation over. When she was talking, they'd be rolling, her eye, rolling their eyes, and they'd, they'd make fun of her. They'd make fun of how she dressed. They just basically ripped this woman apart, and she just kind of watched this, you know, as she's doing this. Well, this went on for like two weeks, and then uh Craig says that his future wife goes to work one day, and the atmosphere on that next Monday morning was completely changed. All of a sudden, uh, everybody was, like, at their work. I mean, like, feverishly. Uh, there was a supervisor that had been there and was kind of the instigator of all this. She was gone. And everybody was giving all this deference and respect, and almost, she said, they had, like, fear in their eyes talking to their new supervisor. You remember that uh, 30-something lady that was getting ripped apart? That was their new supervisor. The bank had already decided where our, our management that we got here, the supervisor there, she's got to go. They hired this lady, and in order for her to get a feel of the working conditions and kind of what it was like to work there and how guys and gals went about their work, they decided that she would just be a part of the team for a few weeks, and then they'd unveil her. And so, of course, they did, and it led to a um, Massive amounts of havoc in these people's lives. They are fearful for their jobs because she saw what they were really all about. Well, in a similar way, when Jesus Christ comes on the scene for several years, he's investigating, he's looking, he's making observation of what the leadership is doing. Speaking specifically of the leadership of Israel, what are they like? Do they really shepherd the people? Well, Do they care about them. Do they love them? Are they teaching people the word? Is the temple and all of its sacrifices, is this done to the glory of God? Or have they turned it into some sort of marketplace to make money? Is it about God and worshiping him? Or is the the worship of Yahweh in Israel really become about people, positions, status, and their own pride? Well, when you come to Matthew chapter 21, you know what happens? Jesus unveils himself and says, I'm it. I'm the Messiah and I'm the authority. I see what's going on and I'm about to set it straight. You see, what Jesus saw was pride in action. And when we speak of pride, we're talking about a pride that leads to a person's downfall. It's downfall. It's just an inordinate obsession with themselves. It is when they, when you take up your own dignity and self-importance and you just magnify it to a level that is completely unhealthy and out of line. And prideful people, you know what happens with pride? They're convinced that you can find your strength, your peace, your security, your identity apart from God. For instance, Satan, an angel created by God, you know what led to his downfall? It was pride. He decided that he would take God on and be a rival to God. In fact, he wanted the uh, he had the audacity to believe that the universe could actually worship him. And that led to his fall. And pride is so very prevalent. Now, it's it's interesting. We can be proud about pretty much everything. In fact, some people are so proud about how humble they are. I mean, we are so twisted that way. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm really proud about how humble I've become. And then you start looking down about everybody else and I wish to, I could say, you know, I think I've got this pride being conquered. But I see it surfacing so often. You know, Nike says, just do it, right? And we could kind abide of into that mentality. We can just do life apart from God. There is something residing within me that wants to live life apart from God. My mind knows the truth. I experience walking with God and the joy that, that's found there, and yet... There's something in me that just wants to do life on my own, as if it's all up to me or it's about me. And I fight this and I'm not alone. All of us struggle with this issue of pride. I mean, think of it. Don't you run people through grids? What kind of apartment they live in or house, the car they're driving, what they look like, their education, how they talk, how they treat people, who they're married to, their kids. We're just constantly running this grid into our mind. And furthermore, we're basically trying to be self-sufficient, good American people. And pride will lead to your downfall. And pride, as the Jewish leaders had it, led to their demise. How powerful is pride? Well, why don't we take a look? When you come to Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, Jesus is going to paint the picture of what pride has done to the nation of Israel, specifically with their leadership and what Jesus is about to do. He is like the supervisor who's been unveiled and he's about ready, he says, to clean house. So Jesus is going to tell them a story. And as per typical, he, lay, he does a parable. A parable is taking uh, something that they do understand and laying aside spiritual truth that they don't understand. And so that's what he's going to do. Beginning in verse 33, he says this. Let me tell you a little story. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Well, again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. Now, just how powerful is pride? Let me tell you, pride blinds us to God's blessings. When we come to Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, he speaks of a landowner. And when he talks about, he's actually quoting from Isaiah 5 two. Now, you and I may not be as familiar with Isaiah chapter 5. However, the, the people of Israel absolutely were. This was called the Song of the Vineyard. And everything he's talking about here, planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, this was, comes explicitly from that psalm. You see, when, the song, when that song was given in Isaiah chapter 5, God was talking about an everyday common occurrence in Israel. Raising grapes, vineyards, was extremely prevalent. In fact, it was the backbone of Israel's economy. All throughout, they had these vineyards. People would raise grapes. And this was very common. A wealthy landowner would go, and what he would do is he'd make his vineyard secure. He might do exactly like the text says. He'd put a wall around it. Why are you putting a wall around your vineyard? You're protecting it from animals and thieves and he might even put up a tower. And so he, he actually built the tower. So you guys have spokes on the observation decks that can see everything that's going on. And you put a wine press in it. This wine press would literally crush those grapes so that wine could be produced. And so this landowner, he has this major vineyard. And what do you do? You rent it out to vine growers. And he goes on to take care of other matters. And this was extremely common. In fact, some of Jesus' hearers would have been people that were working for a landowner. And basically how it worked is you gave at least 25% all the way up to 50% of the produce to the landowner. In return, you got to use the land and anything that you could grow from it, that was yours. That's how you made your living. And so they're all very familiar with this. And so Jesus is giving the story. The vine was so prevalent to Israel that in their temple where Jesus is speaking, and at the porch right before the Holy of Holies, there was this vine that had been sculpted that was 105 feet tall. and Because the vine and the vineyard was a part of the national identity of Israel. And so God referred to Israel as his vineyard. People identified with this message. When Jesus starts talking about Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, they are totally locked in. Now, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 1 through 7, really is this song condemns Israel for producing bad fruit. God gave everything they needed to produce great fruit, abundant fruit, fruit of worship, praise, godly leadership, concern for the poor and the widows, the gospel of, of righteousness of God by faith to go out from the nation. And yet everybody was abandoning that. Well, when you come to Matthew chapter 21, it's like the sequel. Jesus is giving the exact same specifications of what happened, just like in Isaiah 5:2, But now he's giving it a little twist. Instead of focusing on the fruit, he's focusing on the workers. You see, these workers had it so good. God gave this, this landowner gave them everything they needed. And this landowner, this landowner is a picture of God. Let me assure you, when Jesus is speaking, they know that he's talking about How do you know that? Jump down to verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about who? Them. And so he's giving a picture, the landowner like God, and they are the ones who actually had the benefit of being the tenants, the workers in the vineyard. But you know what? They totally missed the blessings of being in God's kingdom. And that is true for you and I. When we fail to treasure the Creator, we miss the blessings that He has given us in life. These people had it so good, and they missed it completely. How powerful is pride? Do you know when you're focused on self, and it's all about you and your self sufficiency? That is your worldview, but furthermore, it is your heart preoccupation. Do you know what? You completely miss out on the blessings God has given you. Instead of being sweet and full of thanksgiving, You become bitter and critical and you forget God. Well, that's exactly what happened with these people. Let me tell you something else that happens, though, with pride. Pride not only blinds you to God's blessings, pride hardens our hearts to God's people. So at harvest time, what does the landowner do? Did you see that? Verse 34, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. So here he goes. and He says, listen, I want you to go to the vineyard and I want you to collect the produce due to me. It's agreed upon. And so the Lord does. He actually sends who? He sends prophets. He sends his people to go and to to basically correct the wrongdoings of the people, to assess whether or not they are following the covenants that they've established with God, and how does the people of Israel treat their master? Well, well, all you have to do is read here, verse 35. They took his slaves and beat one, killed another, stoned a third. And then, this, this master, why, why does he even, why is verse 36 even in there? Look at this. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Why doesn't this master, if he sees that they're beating his servants up and they're killing them and throwing rocks at him, why doesn't he, why does he send more? Because that's who God is. God is gracious. He is loving. He's forgiving. He is always willing to give another opportunity. And so he sends even more. But this is what God did. In the Old Testament, God sent his prophets to his people. And basically, for the most part, do you know what the people of Israel did with God's prophets? They did just like these vine growers did. Let me just give you a little overview of kind of the sort of things that did. Like, for instance, Elijah, he had to hide the prophet. This Elijah was running around. He's running around in the wilderness because he was being pursued by the monarchy. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, he's actually thrown in a cistern. And, a, and church tradition holds that he actually was eventually killed by being stoned to death. Isaiah, Isaiah, the prophet that wrote Isaiah, do you know what happened to him? According to Jewish tradition, they actually placed him in a a tree that was hollowed out and they sawed him in two. Why? They did not like his message. You see, the people recognized that the prophets were truly representatives of God himself. They were speaking for him. God's spirit was working through them and they didn't like what they were hearing. They had totally abandon the thought of aligning themselves with God. Let me give you some more. Ezekiel, he was rejected. Amos was put on the run. Micah was smashed in the face by those who opposed his message. Zechariah, he was actually killed between the altar and the temple. And then John the Baptist, the last prophet in this kind of Old Testament lineup. What did they do with him? They watched the Romans apprehend him, arrest him, and eventually behead him, and they did nothing about it. Now this. This, me- this story that Jesus is telling, this would be pretty startling for the people of Israel that are hearing this. Because landowners weren't like this generally. Most landowners were pretty tough. And if you didn't pay what you were supposed to pay, they had ways of getting rid of you. I actually even read that some of these landowners, there were a few of them, that even had teams of assassins, and they just basically go and kill you. It's their land. You weren't going to pay up. We're going to get rid of you. We'll bring some new folks in. That is how it worked. But Jesus is showing you that the father, he's completely unlike that. He is gracious and he's generous. And what does the father desire? What does God desire from his people? He desires fruit. Fruit that comes from the root of a rich relationship with him. Fruit that looks like genuine, sincere worship. Fruit that looks like leadership that actually cares for the people, like in Ezekiel chapter 34, that cares for the wounded, that feeds them, that strengthens them, that teaches them the word, that leads them, encourages them, builds them up, that keeps the focus upon God. He's looking for fruit that comes from people that are studying the word, practicing it personally, teaching it. Fruit that comes from offering God willing sacrifices of gifts. Was that the case? He found no such fruit because there were no such uh, workers in the field. You see what happens? Pride hardens you to God's people. God's people bring the word to you, whether it be in a small group or in a Sunday school class or perhaps from a pulpit. You hear God's word on the radio. But if you are a self-made man or woman and it's all about you, you tune those things out. It's because pride is taking over. It's taken root in your heart. It's like an idol that beckons you to keep your focus on self rather than on God. And the result is your hearts become hardened to God's people. You know, it's a real good thing that you and I aren't, aren't God. You know why? Our Old Testament would be real short, wouldn't it? I don't think the people would have made it to Mount Sinai, the people of Israel, right? Because, man, if you don't, it's over, right? We just, it's over, game over. You're totally disobeying. You're grumbling. You're whining. You don't want me. You keep, I do great things for you. I do miracles in your midst. You complain. You groan. You gripe. And if we were God, we'd just like, that's it. Game over. God, on the other hand, he's so merciful and he is so patient. He is kind and he is gracious. But you need to know that the reason that God is gracious to you and I, even in our rebellion toward him, in our disobedience, in our complacency, there, is, there does come a time where God says judgment is coming. Because not only is God completely loving, but he is also totally just. And he's upholding justice in the universe. And he will judge sin wherever he finds it. And so Jesus is telling the story about the vine growers. He, they, uh, they take his slaves. They beat one. They're stoning people. They did the same thing to another group. This is all a picture of what the people of Israel did to the prophets. It's really a summary of the Old Testament. God is gracious, provides everything the people need. The people, instead of enjoying God and his blessings, they reject him. They reject his people. Well, what does God do? Well, verse 37, Jesus had been telling his disciples, preparing them for what is to happen. Now, in parabolic form, Jesus is going public on it. Look at verse 37. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. What kind of landowner is this? What do you mean? Look what they did to all your servants. They're dead or they're all beat up. Look at him. He can't even walk anymore. You're going to send your son? I will send my son to them. What what kind of landowner would do that? What kind of God? And father would send his one and only son to people who were rebellious, reviling, and would go to the extent of abusing his people. I'll tell you who's like that. God is like that. And so look at this. Verse 37. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect. They'll honor my son. Ha, ha, ha. You think that's what's going to happen? Well, look at verse 38. But when the wine grow, vine growers saw the sun, they said among themselves, "This is the heir. Look at this. Come, let us kill and seize his inheritance." And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Does that sound familiar? It should? Because this is exactly what is about to take place in just a few days. Jesus is spilling it out. They see it. You see, these vine growers, they actually think like, oh, man, here's the sun. Let me tell you some things that that a person might be thinking. You see, if 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 a wealthy landowner didn't care for his land and never checked on it for a period of three years, the people that were occupying that land could try to lay some sort of claim to it. Now, they've already beat up and killed the people that the master has sent, so they could maybe just say, well, the master's not into this land. But furthermore, they may see that, like, these landowners in the story, if they see the son coming, they could maybe make the assumption, well, how about that? The father's dead. Here comes the son. Well, We'll just make this real easy. We'll kill him, and we'll lay claim to this, and it'll be ours. What Jesus is doing, he's showing them that, they will go to the extent that they are willing to kill the son to occupy their place with their religion. Now, it's real interesting. You may have missed this here, but they they actually see this in verse 39. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Do you know why they don't kill kill him inside the vineyard? Because they would believe that you would actually defile the vineyard if someone was killed in it. And so here they are. This is just crazy. They're concerned about God's laws of defilement, but they're not exactly so concerned about killing God's son. And so they see if a person was killed in the vineyard, then the vineyard would be defiled and no one would buy their wine. So what do you got to do? You got to get that guy out of there and then you kill him. That's what they're thinking. It is why Jesus is not crucified in Jerusalem just a few days from now. Because that would defile God's city. Can't have that. If we're going to kill this one who calls himself Messiah and God's son, we've got to do it outside the walls. And so it will be in just a few days. Jesus will be killed outside the vineyard. Now, so they go and they kill him. And look at this. They go, we're going to kill him and we will seize his inheritance and this will be ours. And so they do that in verse 39. They took him, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus says, hey, guys, What will he do to these vine growers that killed his people, ignored his blessings, and now killed his sons? He says, what do you guys think? Well, listen, they answer the question, and by doing so, they actually state their own condemnation. Look at verse 31. They answer. They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. We know what's going to happen. He's going to get rid of them. And he's going to bring people that really actually do honor the landowner and will do as they've agreed upon. And that's exactly what is going to happen. They nail it. And Jesus said to him, you got it right. He is going to take those wretches and he's going to bring them to a wretched end. And Jesus said to him, verse 42, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And so Jesus says, that's right. You got it. And then he kind of changes metaphors here. He says, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. What he's doing there is now he's calling to mind Psalm 118, verse 22. They were very familiar with Psalm 118 because in Psalm 118, verse 25, they were literally calling out Hosanna, son of David, from that psalm when Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. Now Jesus calls to mind about the cornerstone. Now let me just tell you a little bit about the cornerstone. The cornerstone of the building was the key stone. The entire building was aligned to it. In fact, to remove the cornerstone was to completely uh, diminish the integrity of a building. Everything was built on that particular stone, and these builders would pride themselves in finding the best cornerstone and shaping it. It was exactly, precisely square, and it set up the alignment of the entire building. And they would actually maybe go through several of them, looking at it, No, not this one. no. This is the one. See, what happened is they, God presents his cornerstone, the Messiah, on which everything is to be built. And the people of Israel, especially their leadership, said, we'll not have it. He doesn't work with the blueprints that we're now working with. I don't care who he says he is, what sort of miracles he's done, we will not have him. And so they reject him. And what Jesus is saying The stone which the builders rejected, you, the builders of Israel, this actually became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it was marvelous in our eyes. You see that in verse 42? God is the one who did this. And so he says in verse 43, he says to you, you know, the kingdom of God, it's going to be taken away from you. You're out because you have rejected me. You rejected my spokespeople, my prophets. You've rejected my blessings. You've rejected me. I'm going to take it away from you, and it's going to be given to a people that will produce fruit from it. Literally a nation, a people, an ethmos. And what's going to happen, he's actually speaking of what's going to take place. Israel is going to basically put on the sideline, and God is going to move the primary work of his kingdom now into the church, which is going to be made up of Jews and Gentiles who will do what? Look at verse 43. You don't want to miss this. What does God intend for people who believe in Christ as the cornerstone of their life? He's Savior and Lord. He desires what? That you and I would produce fruit. Because God is interested in that his people who are in relationship with him Give him the fruit of praise, of worship, of sacrifice, of ministry, that our hearts long to love him. That is what he's after. And if that is not the case, Jesus says, what's happening here is that you don't produce fruit because you will not have me. Furthermore, you reject me as your Messiah. And so you know what's going to happen? He says, verse 44, he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And so what he's talking about is like a stone. And like if you took a ceramic vase and you threw it against a cornerstone, who's going to win? How many of you think the race is going to win? You're wrong. Right? It's not going to happen. What? It's going to shatter. That's what happens. People hear about Jesus, that he's Lord, that he's resurrected from the dead. And they go, I'm not going to have it. They stumble upon, stumble over him. You know what it does? It shatters your life in judgment. You think that you're going to stand, but when the metal of your life is then placed against the stone of God and his judgment and his power, you shatter. God doesn't. I don't care how smart you think you are or the things that you've accomplished. You are not God. On the other hand, He also says, and he whomever the stone falls, it will scatter him like dust. Here is a picture of like the second advent of Christ. In his first coming, Jesus comes. He comes as a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. He offers his life. He invites all people to trust and believe in him. If you won't have it, you're too smart for that. Whatever it might be, your refusal, your lack of willingness to believe, you are going to be like smashed upon that stone. But God has made it crystal clear that judgment is coming. And Jesus is going to be like that stone in Daniel chapter 2, and he's literally going to crush all opposition. It's like the ceramic little vase is set on the ground, and the stone comes. And when that stone lands on that vase, it literally shatters it. Now, I want to make something clear. God isn't done with Israel. Everything that we're experiencing in these last 2,000 years where you see a multitude of Gentiles and some Jewish people believing in Jesus as Messiah— This has been prophesied to take place. In fact, in the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, 11, especially chapter 11, it makes crystal clear that there's been a partial hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Just like Jesus said, I'm going to produce, I will have a nation that will bear fruit. I will have people that will worship me, and they may not even be Jewish in origin. And most of the people that are Christians are not Jewish. This is by God's divine design. But after Daniel's 70th week, after the tribulation period that is spoken of throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, God is once again going to bring a revival in Israel and people will indeed worship Jesus as their Messiah. But the people of Israel, they have rejected him. They will not build their life upon him. And friends, this is the critical question for us. Who are you building your life upon. Pride is going to keep you from Christ. If you're here today and there's just a refusal to worship God, a refusal to trust him, a refusal to say, God, I'm a sinner and I trust Jesus as the payment for my sin, a refusal to build your life, your ethics, your morality, your character on Jesus Christ, what in essence is happening is you're rejecting the cornerstone. And friends, nothing can take the place of christ he is the foundation of our life and anytime we try to replace christ with maybe just being involved in a church or our work life or our social life or pleasure or whatever what happens is the building crumbles because god intended it this way that if you're going to experience life it is only found as we build upon the cornerstone of christ it is that simple and it is that profound people of israel they refused the message they repudiated the messengers and they rejected the messiah the question i want to leave with you is who is the cornerstone of your life is it jesus christ or is it something or someone else about nine years ago i was uh, working on my doctoral studies at dallas seminary i ran across a a guy that I just, he was just a cool guy. I, I, I loved being around him. He was sharp, very intelligent. Uh, we were taking the same class, and I was hanging out with Rick, and I said, hey, yeah, just tell me your story. I'm really curious about a guy like you. Well, he told me he grew up in a, in a church, or a home, and they went to a church that's part of a liberal mainline denomination. I won't mention what it is. They didn't believe the Bible, really wasn't sure sure what they even believed about God. It was, it was just a lot of fluff. He grew up like that. And when you grow up and you never hear truth and you don't have a foundation, you never have a worldview where God is at the center, you never hear about Christ, the cornerstone, you try to find your fulfillment in life in something else. And so he tried to find it in a variety of different ways and nothing seemed to work. He actually went to college. He went to a school. Part of his mainline denomination had a school, a college. They were known for soccer. That was what he was interested in. He went there. He said, but, man, things went from bad to worse. He got himself involved in drugs and immorality said I was just generally despondent. And yet, I'm just kind of going through life. Kind of the story of so many people. And he gets down to college. He goes back home. He's going to start working in the family business. He goes back to the same old church that he went to when he was a kid. And it's like something is totally missing. It's not working. And so he finally said, I, I've had enough. i I, I got to get this figured out. He noticed that the church across the street, man, people... People all showing up there. they got Bibles and stuff like that, you know, and they seem genuinely excited about their relationship with God. He goes, yeah, go check it out. So he goes over to across the street, decides I'm going to go check out what's going on there. He says, for the first time in my life, I had someone actually start explaining the Bible to me. And when he told me this, he started to kind of get teary-eyed about how friendly these people were. I mean, they genuinely just reached out to him and welcomed him, and everything he was hearing was like new. These people like, like knew God. And they were, he was hearing the word. And he was like, wow, some pretty cool things are going on in his life. He, has, he eventually marries his girlfriend, and um, he keeps going to the church. See, wants nothing to do with this, but uh, he's like, I, I'm going. Finally, uh, they had this special speaker come in for a series of little meetings they're going to have. And um, he goes the first night, and this man presents the gospel. He'd heard it before, but he just felt compelled to believe in Christ, and so he does. He told me, I, I, just, I just turned from all of my sin in my life. I trusted Jesus. Well, he was pretty excited about that. Goes home, shares it with his wife. She's not too happy about that. Like, what? He's like, you got to just come with me. Uh, I don't want to go. Second night, nope, not going. Third night, she reluctantly comes. So they come, they're sitting there. He says, I never looked at her once. I just sat by her. Here's this guy, and he goes and proclaims Jesus Christ, Lord, Savior, at the end, he goes, hey, if you want to place your faith in Christ, I just I invite you to come and meet me up here. And his wife grabs his hand. He looks at her. She's got tears coming out of her eyes. She goes, will you go with me? So they went forward, and God starts this work of renewal. Right now, Jesus Christ becomes the cornerstone of, of this couple. What's so cool is he said that for four years, there was a couple in the church that met with them every single week to help them get grounded in their relationship with Christ. And he went on, his businessman took off, and he said, at the height of my career, I was making all sorts of money. He sensed that God was calling me me, to actually become a pastor. And after a period of wrestling with it and praying with his wife, he, he did. He went and got training today, even this morning, is a pastor of a Bible church, Pike Creek Bible Church in Delaware. Now, I tell you this not because you've got to become a pastor for Christ to be your cornerstone. No. You have to know Christ and have a life yield to him where it says, Lord, I want nothing but you. Lead me, guide me. I want my morality. I want my character. I want my worldview. I want everything about my life to be centered on you. And friends, the choice is yours. Reject him or receive him? You see, the power of pride prevents us from experiencing the life of Christ. And pride is so very powerful. Remember what James said in James 4, 6? God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. But let me tell you, brokenness before the king leads to fruitfulness and life. And it starts from the heart. If you do not yield to God and you don't want God and you don't want to love God, it is a heart issue. Look and focus upon Jesus, his death and his resurrection. See how much he loves you. Experience his grace. He fills you with his love. Let me just give you some ways to overcome tendencies of being prideful and how to develop Christ as your cornerstone. Develop patterns of prayer. Confess your need for Christ. Study the scripture. Let the word of God fuel your foundation. Confess your sin. Don't rationalize it. Serve others with joy. And be discipled by someone who's a mature believer. What's fueling your foundation? TV, media, educators that have no place for God? Some sort of political guru that's got it all figured out? Or is it Jesus Christ and the pure milk of the word? The power of pride prevents us from experiencing the life of Christ. And let me tell you something for sure. The outcome of your life will be determined by who or what you're basing it on. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of the gospel. That life is found in Jesus Christ. He who's been crucified on our behalf, paid the penalty for our sins, and has risen and gives us life so, Father, I pray that the firm foundation of our life would be Jesus and Christ alone. We ask this in his name.